So what are the great idols of our day in our current modern Western cultural life? What are the great idols that all of us have a, have a temptation to strive for, search for, and bow the knee to? Well, these great idols of our day are comfort, convenience, and the pursuit of ease in life. Comfort, convenience, and the pursuit of ease in our lives. In our rich, modern, Western culture, have you noticed that everything in our lives is oriented in this direction? We orient our lives around the pursuit of increased comfort, increased convenience, and increased ease. And as a result, we do everything possible to avoid the opposite. We do everything in our power to avoid any discomfort or any difficulty. We avoid difficult conversations. You ever notice this? We avoid difficult conversations. We avoid the practice of calling sinners to repentance. Why? Why do we avoid these things? It's because we don't want to deal with the inevitable blowback that arises or comes our way as a result of that. Why do we not want to deal with that? Because it's uncomfortable. It takes away our ease and our convenience. We tend to avoid full-throated, clear proclamations of the gospel in most of the situations in our lives, in most of the situations in which we find ourselves. Why? We don't want to deal with the repercussions that will inevitably arise from preaching Christ. They rob us of, of our comfort, our convenience, and our ease. This is one of the single most glaring and obvious holes in modern-day Christian teaching and practice. That of the place of persecution suffering, and difficulty in the life of the Christian. What is the place of difficulty? What is the place of persecution? What is the place of lacking ease? What place do these things, which are the very opposite of what we seek, what position do these hold in the life of the serious obedient and Christ-honoring believer. Well, if you listen to a great number of today's more famous professing Christian leaders, you might come to the conclusion that persecution and suffering really have little to no place in the life of a believer these days. For many, these concepts are just left completely off the table. Or even worse, in one of the more devastating turns of events in our rich modern Western culture, there, the doctrine of persecution, we have created a doctrine and, of persecution and suffering and put that doctrine forward as true even though it directly opposes what Scripture tells us. It doesn't take much effort, does it? to pick up your remote control and search through the TV channels and find some preacher declaring that faith in Christ will lead to this year's increase in your life 
Or this will be your year of breakthrough if you have enough faith in Jesus. It'll be the year of increase. If you have real faith in Christ, they tell you, you will see an increase in your financial situation. You will see healing from that sickness, that disease, or that ailment that you are suffering from. And here's one of the ironies. You ever notice that all of these guys are wearing glasses? What is that? Faith will heal you. Except for my eyesight, I need my glasses. It just, it boggles my mind that we don't see through the hypocrisy of it all, right? They tell you that if you have real faith in Jesus Christ, this will lead to your ease, to your convenience, and to your comfort. Let me just tell you, with absolute clarity, that any teacher... And any doctrine that tells you that your life on earth will be easier and more comfortable because of your connection to Christ is lying to you. These types prey upon the idolatrous hearts of false believers or they prey upon the multitudes of people who simply don't know any better because they, have not, they don't have an understanding of the full context of Scripture. And so these, these preachers will pull out texts from, from outside of their context in order to prove or to buttress their declarations of health and wealth and ease and comfort. And it is, you know, you want to talk about a pandemic. This is a pandemic. This is a spiritual pandemic. And it's impacting and affecting the lives of Christians all over the world. So here's an example. A number of texts that these preachers will use are specific to the covenants that God made with Israel when they entered into the promised land. If you read the covenant that God made in Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus, you will notice that it is a very specific covenant made to a specific people at a specific time entering into a specific land. And yes, that covenant that God made with Israel was filled with wonderful promises of abundance. If, if they obeyed the words and the commands set out for them in that covenant. It was a conditional covenant specific to their life in the promised land. If Israel obeyed, they would live in abundance. They would live with watered fields, with plenty of crops, with, with land that overflowed with wine and with oil, with grass abundant in the fields to feed their livestock, to keep them healthy and fattened. There would be peace on all sides of the country and they would eat and be filled. You can see this all if you want to in Deuteronomy chapter 11. A number of wonderful, specific promises to Israel in the land. But let me just say, while modern-day prosperity preachers will pull these out in order to tell you that the life of the Christian is one of ease, abundance, joy, health, and... Or not joy, ease and abundance and health and wealth, these texts do not apply to us in the same way. These are not promises of the Lord to us in Canada in the 21st century. These texts teach us so many wonderful things about salvation history. They teach us so many wonderful things about the faithfulness of God and His long-suffering patience. They teach us wonderful things about God's grace and His power, but they in no way contribute to or support the horrendous, error-riddled, deceptive doctrines peddled by modern-day hucksters and snake oil salesmen. 
So many align with these false teachers. Why? Because they, want, they tell people what their unrepentant, unregenerate hearts want to hear. And even worse, their ideas begin to trickle e- into even the f- more faithful churches. Have you noticed it? And in the gospel work of faithful believers. And so many of us go into the world and we avoid the more difficult doctrines that are part and parcel of a gospel proclamation. Repentance. Sinfulness. Instead, we go in to the world when we gather up the courage and we say things like, listen, I want you to know that God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, is this not exactly what the unsaved person wants to hear? If you are an unsaved person, don't you want to hear somebody come to you and say, God loves you and he has the most wonderful plan for your life? And if they are particularly perceptive, they might ask you, well, what's that wonderful plan? What is that wonderful plan that God has for my life? But I've noticed that we are generally unprepared to adequately define what we mean by that statement. He has a wonderful plan for your life. And so many of the people who hear such proclamations, proclamations that, that don't mention sin and that don't mention repentance, assume that God will show his love in our lives. That wonderful plan is that he will make my life on earth in the here and now wonderful, peaceful, easy and free from difficulty. God is determined to make my life one of happiness, one of health, one of comfort, and one of financial freedom. But is that the case? No. And when the realities of serving Christ, as we see in Scripture, inevitably hit, when the laughter comes, when the criticism comes, when the slander comes, when the difficulties of life continue, when the bills are still due and your funds are still low, when temptations to sin are still present, eventually a large number of these toss this faith that didn't measure up to the promises that were made out the window and they just go back to living their old lives. You probably know a number of people who have done just that, right? You have probably in your life tried to tell someone the gospel and they said, I tried that once, it didn't work. Do you know why? Because we didn't tell them the truth. In oh so many ways, we avoid speaking the clear truth. That believing in, that living for, that obeying Christ in a world that hates him, in a world that loves sin and darkness, in a world that responds violently to the light of holiness and righteousness shined in its direction by both the words and the lives of Christ's true followers, this leads to persecution and suffering in the lives of believers. And if you like, if you want it summed up for you in one sentence, We can read the Apostle Paul's words to his young pastoral protege, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, when he wrote this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All here means without exception. 
This is the New Testament teaching in a nutshell about persecution. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This text levels a tremendous rebuke to those in our culture who would profess the name of Jesus while adjusting doctrines and adjusting theology and adjusting scripture and adjusting practice in order to avoid the rage and the persecution of the culture of darkness. And this isn't a new phenomenon, is it? Do you see it like I see it? Churches surrendering to all across our, uh, our continent? Surrendering to, yielding to, submitting to the whims and the values of this culture all the time. So much so that it's not even surprising anymore, is it? Is it surprising to you to hear that churches submit and yield to culture anymore? In a sad turn of offense, in a sad state of affairs, we are now more surprised when we see churches actually holding scriptural ground, aren't we? In our day, the issue of our day, the issue du jour is in the area of sexuality. Now, the cultural heat on this subject is really high right now, isn't it? And when we start talking about homosexuality and when we start talking about what the culture terms transgenderism, the heat is at a peak level. And so many of those who profess Jesus, many of those churches who profess to be uh, aligned with Christ, in order to alleviate this cultural heat and alleviate this cultural pressure and avoid the difficulties and repercussions of fidelity to God's word, begin to adjust. They don't want to face the persecution of the dark culture, do they? And so they adjust. They adjust their reading of God's word in order to avoid the flames of cultural anger. Because many decide it's just not worth it. It's just not worth it. It's just not worth it to hold to and to believe and to hold firm to God's righteous will and God's righteous decrees. It's just not worth it. It's not worth it to hold to the words of Jesus. You remember when answering a question posed to him by the Pharisees, Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 19. Have you not read that he who created them, that's Adam and Eve, from the beginning made them male and female? Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, did you ever think that this idea would inspire such rage and persecution. For a lot of you that have lived on this earth longer than others, was there a point, in, did you ever, when you were younger, think that this, holding to this teaching of Jesus would inspire rage and persecution? And guess what? 
For many of the younger people in here, there are things that we hold to now that are just common sense that will in 20 and 30 years inspire rage and persecution. The goalposts are always moving, and so you have to count the cost. All of us have to count the cost of following Jesus. It's entirely appropriate to call on others to count the cost of truly dedicating your life to Jesus Christ. See, when Jesus began his public ministry, what was the first word he used? Repent. Now, if that isn't a word that calls on us to count the cost, what is? Repent, meaning recognize that you are a sinner. Recognize that you have sinned against a holy God that hates sin. And this means if you are going to follow him, you must turn from that sin, reject it, hate it, commit to ending it, commit to putting sin in your life to death and reorient your life completely, the entirety of your life completely in thought, in word, and deed in the direction of Jesus Christ. And we must count the cost because if we do that, If you submit your life to him, you obey his commands, and you live life for his glory, you will be persecuted. This does not promise you any worldly comfort, any worldly ease, any worldly reward. In fact, in fact, it might cost you everything. It might cost you your friends It might cost you your family, your job, your status. It may lead you to being slandered, maligned, mistreated, and hated. It might even cost you your very life. But know this. The ultimate rewards that belong to those who truly love and serve Christ more than make up for the sufferings and the persecutions that we experience here. This place is not our home. Which is why Christ says in our text this morning in verse 12, your reward is great in heaven. What comforting words those are. So here's the question for you. Have you counted the cost? In your gospel proclamations to others, do you call on them to count the cost? Jesus constantly called for people who came to him to do just that, didn't he? Count the cost of following him. Jesus never told people that it would be easy. He always indicated that serving him leads to great difficulty and it demands great sacrifice. For example, in Luke 18, when the rich young ruler came to Jesus asking what he must do to inherit eternal life, Jesus didn't say, hey, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. No, Jesus knew what this young man's idol was and called on this young man to turn from it, repent of it, eliminate it. This young man's idol was financial freedom. And so Jesus told him in that moment, turn from it, sell all you have, and follow me. And in that moment, the young man calculated the cost and recognized, I'm just not willing to pay it, hung his head in sorrow, and walked away. And here's the kicker. Jesus let him walk away. Jesus didn't adjust anything. Jesus gave him the truth. The cost is high. 
count it. Then you either believe it or you reject it. Rich young ruler, the ball is in your court. What are you going to do? And in Luke 9, Jesus walked along the road with his disciples. And at least three, he had three interactions. Each of them, each of these interactions indicating a person with some level of commitment or some level of desire to follow Jesus. And so in Luke chapter 9, verses 57 to 58, this man comes to Jesus and says this, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What is Jesus saying there? Count the cost. You want to follow me? But in your case, this will mean giving up the comforts of life. It'll mean assuming a more difficult and less relaxing lifestyle. Have you counted the cost? Are you still interested? Because this will lead to more difficulty in your life. Balls in your court. Would you rather increased tranquility or would you rather the difficulties inherent in following me? We don't know what this person did. It doesn't tell us. Then Jesus saw another person on the road as he was walking down with his disciples and in John 9, 59, Jesus called out to him, Follow me! But this man said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him in 960, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. You see, this man, he wanted to get all his affairs in order. He wanted to live with his family until they had all died before setting out to follow Jesus. But again, Jesus said, count the cost. Following me means that everything else and everyone else takes a distant second to obedience. Jesus is to be prioritized above everything. Everything. Spouses. Children. Parents. Friends. Everything. So Jesus said to this man, count the cost. And once more, another man called out to Jesus in nine, Luke 9, 61. I will follow, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus called this man also to count the cost in 962, saying, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. If one is to be a plowman in the fields of the Lord, all of the focus must be on the work. All of the focus must be on what's happening in the field and they must continue to look forward to what lies ahead. They must continue to labor in those fields for the harvest without distraction, without longingly looking back at what they left behind. Because when a plowman looks behind, the, the, he, uh, he or she plows crooked lines and the harvest suffers. So as Christ was and Christ is crystal clear about the cost of following him, so too must we in our day recapture this clarity. And we must in our day declare to everyone who would come to him, and we also sitting here this morning and watching on the live feed must also count the cost. 
count the cost? Is following Jesus worth what it will cost you? And what is the greatest of costs? All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So as we've worked through these Beatitudes, as we've worked through these characteristics of the truly repentant person, those who have truly come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have noted these, that these are, first, remember, poor in spirit. Meaning that they recognize their complete and total spiritual poverty before the Lord and they rely completely and solely on the good grace and mercy of the Lord for salvation. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. They are also those who mourn, meaning that when they are confronted by the perfect law of God and realize how far short they have fallen of that law, they experience the inner grief and agony. They lament the inner corruption and groan over their acts of disobedience to the God who has been oh so good to us. And out of those two characteristics, being poor in spirit and mourning, we start to reveal certain characteristics like meekness. And this, the meek are those who have, whose lives have been changed by the recognition of their poverty and their mourning. We grow in meekness, meaning we grow in mild and gentle dispositions toward one another, bearing with one another in love, avoiding anger, avoiding division. Even though we have it in our power to act against someone, we refuse to do so because we imitate the beautiful mercy of our Savior who went to the cross on our behalf. There are also those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those desperate to receive the righteousness of Christ by grace through faith, those desperate and who strive to grow in righteous living, being righteous in deed, righteous in word, righteous in thought. This hunger and thirst is the all-encompassing desire of those who are truly saved. And this leads us to being merciful, those who truly understand the mercy of God that has been poured out upon us will, as a result, in complete gratitude to the Lord, display that mercy to others by withholding judgments, withholding punishment, withholding wrath against an offender, and instead filling that space with the display of an exercise of compassion and sympathy towards those who sin against us. They are pure in heart, meaning those whose hearts, their hearts are singularly focused on living for the Lord. They aren't divided in their affections. They're not kind of straddling this fence trying to, to live in the world and live for the Lord. No, they are fully focused on living for and obeying the Lord. And one of the, one of the great characteristics of those who are pure in heart is that they labor to actively create and promote peace among hostile parties. Because we understand and glory in the peace that has been created between God and us by the work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. These are all the characteristics of a truly repentant follower of Christ. And listen, when we get to this last beatitude, Jesus is giving us the response of the world to those who live according to these characteristics. The truly repentant follower of Christ, the one who exhibits all of these characteristics, will be met by persecution from the world because of it. And so Jesus pronounces a blessing on those who, because they love him, 
experience the hostility of the world, saying, in verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So here... As a Christian's faith grows, as it develops, as it strengthens, as it in ever-increasing measure takes top and primary spot in our lives, as our love for Christ and our desire to imitate Him, to speak of Him, to worship Him, to obey Him, to exalt Him, when all of these swell and escalate, this will be noticed by the world around us. Eventually, those who do not share your eagerness and your passion for Christ will take note. And if, if you don't back down, if you don't hide it, which we'll see next week, don't hide your light under a bushel. If you don't hide it or adjust it, persecution will come. And listen, this persecution here in verse 11 or 10 is distinctly tied to righteousness. Do you see that? It's distinctly tied to righteousness. What Jesus is talking about here, the type of persecution that is being spoken of here is that which arises out of living for him. Harassments and attacks that inevitably spring from the darkness against the children of light against those whose sole wish and primary impulse is to live in harmony with God, to live according to God's perfect, holy will. These will endure persecution. Why? Because the wicked, those who hate Christ, those who love sinful passions of the world, those who hate the light of holiness, will react. And this because your very existence, your very existence as a Christian is an indictment upon their deeds and upon their lives. And for this reason, the wicked world hates the children of God. And Scripture is so clear about this. John chapter 3, verses 19 to 20, for example, says this. This is the judgment. The light, that's Jesus, has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. The light by its very nature is an indictment upon the darkness. And as a result, Jesus, knowing the hearts and the disposition of those who love the darkness and their response to people of the light, warned and prepared his disciples in John 15, saying this, Listen, listen, disciples. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. That's an indictment right there, isn't it? But because you are not of this world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the world that's 
Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. You want to know how deeply entrenched in the world you are? Listen to how the world speaks of you. And so many Christians that I know are terrified, and maybe you're one of them, terrified of the accusation of being judgmental. Terrified that the world might look at you and say, you're too judgmental. Listen, don't be embarrassed. Don't be embarrassed or ashamed of such an accusation because simply by virtue of your being an obedient follower of Jesus Christ, simply by virtue of you being a child of light, you will also be a light that shines into the darkness and that light necessarily judges the depravity and the wickedness of sinners. And so, yes, they will feel judged by your presence. You don't even have to say anything. Your very existence as a child of light among the children of darkness is a judgment upon them, and it will lead to your persecution. And if this is the case, did you hear what Jesus said? Blessed are you. Blessed are you. As Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 10, 22, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. And again in Matthew 24, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Now he's specifically speaking to his, his immediate disciples there, but that hasn't changed for us either. And this hatred, listen, it will not be and it is not a rational hatred. As was the case with Jesus Jesus actually said, the word of the law must be fulfilled in John 15, 25. They hated me without cause. They hated me without cause. It's not rational. They hated me without cause. People hated Christ for no legitimate reason other than that he was righteous. And as it was with Christ, so it will be with us. The world doesn't quite grasp that our goal in this world is to bring as many people into the saving knowledge of Jesus as possible. Our goal in this world is the flourishing of this world, the betterment of this world. Righteousness is the great joy and delight of all human beings. And so we're calling people into their joy. But irrationally, they decline. And they will hate you without cause even though your goal is the flourishing of this world. You who are devoted to righteousness will be hated for no other cause than that you are righteous. And Jesus says, blessed, fortunate, privileged, highly favored. All of these are... are words you can use in, in, this, in this word that is used here, blessed. Blessed, fortunate, privileged, and highly favored are those persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now listen, the blessing here is specifically for persecution for righteousness' sake, for the imitation and service 
to the Lord Jesus for obeying and living lives according to his standard. Scripture makes sure to tell us that this is the persecution that is blessed. And if you suffer because of your own foolishness or we suffer because of the difficult situations that we have created for ourselves, that doesn't count. The Apostle Peter wrote this in, in 1 Peter chapter 4 when he said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it, is, when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Just a, a halt there for a second. Did you notice? Trials and persecutions and sufferings, according to Peter, are not to be seen as strange in the life of a Christian. Did you catch that? Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Do you see that? Don't suffer for something sinful and then try to claim that you are one of the blessed being persecuted for righteousness' sake. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. As a believer, you must learn the difference between suffering and persecution that comes as a result of being needlessly offensive and difficult and being a difficult human being in the natural sense and the persecution that comes or arises because you live and act in a righteous manner. Blessed are you, says Jesus, when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Now, when I talk to a bunch of people out in the world, when I talk to different pastors even, there is this assumption that the practice of righteousness and the practice of Christ-likeness will or ought to lead to the applause and the respect of culture. The respect of the unbeliever. And even when you go back into the days of the disciples, in the days of the incarnation of Jesus, the Jews thought the same thing. Suffering and persecution, they thought, was a sign of divine displeasure upon the afflicted one. But Christ turns all of that around, doesn't he? Those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake are the blessed ones. And not only that, but they follow in the footsteps of Christ himself who lived the perfect and most righteous life that's ever been lived. And in the end, because of it, he was hated, he was spit upon, he was beaten. And when it came time for the crowds to choose between a criminal or the most righteous person to ever live, they chose the criminal, sending Jesus to his death. And this is our example not even Jesus was exempt from suffering and persecution. And here we are arrogantly thinking that we can figure out something that Jesus himself couldn't. How to live a Christian life without suffering and persecution. How to live a Christian life that gains the applause of the world. So what is this persecution that's being spoken of here? Well, it comes in many forms. You might be attacked or harassed verbally, emotionally, or physically. 
You might be attacked or harassed in your family life, in your social life, in your civic life, in your work life for your commitment to Christ. The government itself, the nation might bring persecution upon you for your service to Christ. But no matter where it comes from, hear the words of Jesus, blessed are you if you are persecuted for righteousness' sake. But not only that, listen, blessed are you when others revile you. This is persecution in word. Blessed are you, verse 11, when others revile you. So blessed are you when you are slandered, when you are falsely accused. Blessed are you when your reputation is sullied and called into question on account of your love for Christ. The Lord, through his prophet Isaiah, comforted his people by saying, listen to me. You who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law, fear not the reproach of man. You hear that? Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. You see, the revilings of the wicked against the righteous are only temporary. They're only here for a short time and they will be dealt with by the Lord. But righteousness and salvation are forever. Blessed are you when you are reviled. And the others that are spoken of here, when others revile you, are the people in general. And the reviling spoken of here is harsh criticisms, insults, and mockery. Now, I've heard it said at times, people will say to me, you know, we in the West, we aren't persecuted. And that's because we don't face the types of physical torments that many of our brothers and sisters across the world face. However, when you look at the words of Jesus here, Jesus is the one who says right here that reviling and the utterance of evil is a form of persecution. You see that? Words can hurt, right? And if you are a human being, which I hope all of us are, you know how difficult and painful revilings are. And evil speech can be. And when we experience it, you're in good company. Jesus himself endured the same. For example, Jesus, after performing a wonderful miracle, healing a man born blind, endured the jealous reviling of the Pharisees who went to him and said, you were born in utter sin, John chapter 9. And you would teach us, and they cast him out. Why did they cast him out? For righteousness. And not only that, but Luke records the rest of this beatitude. Not only are you blessed when reviled on account of Jesus, but look at the addition of Luke here. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. A blessing and a woe. Do you see that? Not only are the righteous reviled in word, however, but they are also persecuted physically. That's what Jesus says next. Not, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. Blessed are you when you are persecuted. Here meaning like physical, physical torment, prison sentences. If you're killed, if you're sneered at, jeered at, beaten, abused, you're whispered at, slandered, there is no end to the ways in which you might be persecuted for the sake of Christ. But if it comes as a result of your love for Christ, you are blessed. He goes on, blessed are you when others utter all kinds of evil against you, when people speak against you with abusive words, false and deceptive words that are designed to damage your reputation, when people use vicious and wicked words against you because you love Jesus. Again, 
Jesus says, you're blessed. And again, Luke records more of Jesus' words on this occasion in Luke 6, when he says, Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so your fathers did to the prophets. When all of these things are brought against you, when all of them are committed against you falsely, meaning with the intention to deceive or to turn others against you on account of Jesus, for the sake of Christ, you are blessed. And you can be comforted by this fact. The kingdom of heaven is yours. And not only that, your reward is great. As we read in the next verse, verse 12, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets before you. Rejoice and be glad. This is the constant New Testament exhortation to persecuted believers and the constant attitude of believers in the New Testament. For example, in Acts chapter 5, you remember it? The apostles were boldly proclaiming Christ to the people, and this drew the anger of the Jewish high council, who arrested them and then said, we charge you not to speak in this name again. Then they beat them and set them free. How would you feel if you were physically lashed and beaten for your your love for Christ? Christ. Contrast that with the disciples who left the presence of the council, according to Acts 5, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And the Apostle Paul, he was no stranger to suffering and persecution, was he? He wrote to us in 2 Corinthians 12.10, For the sake of Christ I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions and calamities for when I am weak I am then I am strong and the author of Hebrews recalls their response to sufferings and persecutions when he wrote this in Hebrews 10:32 recall the former days when after you were enlightened you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Can you just imagine that? We're coming in to take all your stuff. All right, here it all is. You know, take it, it's yours. I'll joyfully accept the plundering of my property because I know that I have a better inheritance with the Lord. I keep a baseball bat by my bed. So as we've seen, Scripture has a lot to say on this subject of persecution and suffering in the life of a believer, doesn't it? And when we bring it all together, here is what we see. First, no believer is exempt from suffering and or, per, and or persecution no matter what any phony television preacher might tell you. 1 Peter 2.21 tells us, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Two, believers will share in both the power of Christ's resurrection. What a blessing, Right? And also, according to Philippians 3.10, perhaps become even like him in his death and we will share with him in his sufferings as well. Three, 
All Christians must be prepared to suffer, so count the cost. Acts 14, 22, it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God, according to the Apostle Paul. Four, following Christ is, at its very core, a call to suffering while in this world. As we obey Christ's call, you remember it in Matthew 16, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever, will lose his li- whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. To go after Christ means to take up your cross. The cross was an instrument of death and suffering. Five, some of us, some of us in this room perhaps, will suffer greatly for the gospel. The Apostle Paul, for example, was one who in his calling, the Lord told Ananias that I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And the Lord, when he saved you, pronounced the same, and you will suffer greatly for his name. Are you ready? Six, we are called to suffer with joy, according to James, who exhorted us in James 1-2 to count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Suffer with joy. Seven, to suffer with Christ is to reign with him. As Paul wrote to Timothy, if we have died with him, We will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Eight, as we started out by saying, all who truly want to live a godly life in Christ will suffer persecution as a result. And nine, any suffering or persecution that we face in this life, that we face at this time, is, according to Paul in Romans 8, 18, not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, all of this is really difficult for us to grasp right now, right? The Lord has, for his own good reasons, in our Western culture, given us a long time of reprieve, and we thank the Lord for that, don't we? But don't think that this is the norm. All over the world, For the last two millennia, Christians have been put to death and persecuted. Suffering and persecution are coming to our doorstep. Are you prepared? Will you be able to endure with rejoicing and gladness because you know your reward in heaven? Will you grasp the fact that when you are persecuted you will be following in the footsteps of a long line of God's people, which is what Jesus says in verse 12, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The author of Chronicles summed up the experience of the prophets of of Israel in this way, in 2 Chronicles. 
The Lord, the God of Israel's father, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words, scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. The witness to the Old Testament prophets, to the treatment of the Old Testament prophets, carries on into the new as Jesus said to Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. And Stephen, when preaching to the religious leaders, said, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered, and he lost his life because of that. And it wasn't just the prophets. God's people have suffered for their righteousness since the dawn of creation. Abel was killed by his brother for offering a more righteous gift in faith. Moses was slandered and maligned and threatened by the people that he led. David was persecuted by Saul and Absalom because the Lord was with him. Daniel was persecuted by the Babylonians for standing firm in the Lord and refusing to bow. The apostles, all of them, suffered for the sake of their confession and service to the Lord. Simon, for example was crucified. According to tradition, he was crucified upside down in Rome during the Neronian persecutions. Andrew was also crucified. James was beheaded by Herod Agrippa. John was, uh, died a natural death in exile. Philip was scourged and crucified in Asia. Matthew was slain through by a halberd. Thomas Strong early tradition has him founding churches in, uh, in India and his martyrdom of being thrust through with a spear. Bartholomew was crucified. James was beaten and stoned to death by the Jews when he was 94 and he literally had his brains beat out of his head with a club. Thaddeus was crucified. Simon the Zealot was crucified. Matthias was stoned and beheaded. Paul was also beheaded. That is uh, pretty clear. After the death of all the apostles, the church went through ten waves of persecution. Nero, for example, used to use Christians as torches to light his gardens. Domitian, a later emperor, decreed, I cease to permit Christians to live. And in our own day, I read an article recently by a man, written by a man named Oscar M.A. China. He had heard the message of the gospel given to him by a prosperity preacher, and this is what he wrote. This is today. He said, I was surprised that all the rosy promises that this preacher told me didn't work. I sold my life out for the gospel and I have preached Christ in 13 communities where no one has ever mentioned his name. And instead of the trouble-free life that was promised to me, my life was filled with sorrow, persecution, frustration, disappointment, deprivation, reproach, rejection, and pain. But I had a conviction that I was on the right path. I have escaped assassination attempts. I have stayed in the bushes without water and food for days. I have been arrested for preaching Christ where it is forbidden to speak his name. Many times I returned sick after embarking on missionary journeys. I wondered why God would allow me to go through all of these troubles even when I was zealously working for him. 
I contemplated many times to quit the calling, but something stronger than me kept me going. I prayed and fasted, but there was no result until one day I decided to search the scripture on the topic of the suffering Christian. Are you prepared? Have you counted the cost? If you suffer for, the, for, the, for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Now, speaking of our penchant for ease and for comfort and convenience in this life, I want to end our time together with a pastoral appeal. See, we've gotten used to persecution being the exception rather than the norm. We've gotten used to comfort and to ease and to convenience to a degree that is difficult for me to watch as a pastor in this culture. You know and I know that the primary duties of our life are the worship of the Lord and the proclamation of His gospel. The worship of the Lord both individually and corporately And we must remember that we live in this world as sojourners, as foreigners, as aliens, as exiles. This world is not our home. So we can't be, we are not to be so afraid of anything that happens here that we forget our home is there and we forget to live in accordance with our primary purpose here on earth. Right? The proclamation of the gospel and the gathering to exalt God with his saints corporately as well as individually. These are our primary callings. Saints, these are our primary callings. And at the beginning of this whole pandemic, there was a tension, right? There was a tension between Hebrews 10, Hebrews 10, chapter 24 and 25, which says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. On the one side, people were arguing that we should be meeting and gathering no matter what. And they made a good, solid biblical argument. And on the other side, we had those who focused on Romans 13 also a wonderful argument. In Romans 13, we read, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So there was a tension between those two things, and conscience dictated which of them was to be followed, right? Both sides made good points. But now we find ourselves in a situation where Romans 13 has been removed. And so we are left with Hebrews 10, right? We are left with, do not forsake the gathering together of the saints. It's time to come back to church. And as I talk to people, and as I sit in my chair and I listen to people, there is great Sorrow as I'm watching the devastation that's being wrought in people's lives as they are away from corporate worship. Some of us have not been to corporate worship in seven months. 
And when you read scripture, you see 1 Corinthians over and over, when you gather. When you read Acts 2, they gathered every day. When you read Hebrews 10, do not forsake the gathering of the saints. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. And during this time, because it is not good for man to be alone or for women to be alone, we have watched the suicide rate go up five times. We've watched overdoses go up five times. I've watched as people's lives have turned to sin and are, actually, are being destroyed because they lack community. It's time to come back to church. And when I have conversations with people, the reasons for not coming to church tend to boil down to one of two or three reasons. The first is complacency. Complacency. I'm growing comfortable staying in my bathrobe and enjoying a coffee in front of my computer. I just don't want to put on my church clothes. Listen, if you want to wear shorts, wear shorts. Just come. It's time to come back to church. Complacency is not a convincing argument not to be back at church. The second one is inconvenience. It's inconvenient for me right now to come to church. And inconvenience, under inconvenience, I, I, I usually get two things. One is my children. My children don't know how to sit in a chair. My children don't know how to wear a mask. My children don't know how to this. My children don't know that. I, listen, bring your kids. Let them crawl all over the place, all over you. <laughs> if we only go to church when it's convenient, what does that say about our faith? It's time to come back to church. The other one is masks. It's also an unconvincing argument. Well, sometimes they're hard to wear, or I don't want to wear one, or I do want to wear one. Everybody should wear them. Nobody should wear them. Listen. Sure, there's going to be some inconvenience about masks and we're going to have to learn how to grow with and bear with one another. But isn't that what following Jesus is? Bearing with one another, growing with one another, learning from one another. And I have, I have sat with deep sorrow as a pastor and as I've watched this issue, this issue become reason for Christians who ought to know better dividing quarreling, arguing. And this would never happen if we were worshiping together, seeing each other face to face, hearing each other's voices, looking in each other's eyes. There's just something about that, isn't there? Complacency is not a good reason not to come back to church. Inconvenience is not a good reason not to come back to church. For those two, it's time to come back to church. And I want you to know something. We will make every accommodation for you. Call me, I will make every conceivable accommodation for you. The third one is fear. Fear. And we read in Scripture, right, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, God has not given us a spirit of fear. Therefore, if you are afraid, that is not from the Lord. And if you are prepared to forsake the gathering of the saints and roll over in fear now, how do you know what you will do when persecution hits, when real suffering hits? What's the worst that can happen? We lose our lives. See ya. I'm out of here. I love you, but I won't miss you.
when I am in the presence of the Lord, I will not miss you guys. Right? Fear is not a good reason not to come to church. It's time to come back to church. Do not be afraid. Get over your inconvenience. Put your church clothes on and come back. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If I could leave you with two words, rejoice, oh wait, four words, rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad. Father, we praise you and we thank you for A, helping us to understand that if we live the righteous life of Christ on earth, it will be met by the reaction of this world. And that is a surefire sign to us of the fact that we are not, this is not our home. Our righteousness is welcome in your kingdom and in your presence, but it's not welcome here in this earth. We were made to live with you. So I pray that when the inevitable persecution arises, whether it is in word or it is in deed, that we would remember the exhortation and encouragement of our Lord Jesus Christ, who also suffered that we would remember that we are blessed, that we would remember our reward is great in heaven, that we would remember to rejoice and be glad in those difficulties. Help us to remember that when we suffer, when we are persecuted. And for all of your children who are listening and watching now, I ask that you would be powerfully inspiring us and your spirit would be moving us to, to, uh, to not give in to fear, because you have not given us a spirit of fear. You've given us a spirit of love, of power, and of sound mind. I pray that you would um, convict us of uh, staying home out of fear. I pray that you would convict us of staying home because of inconvenience, and I pray that you would convict us for staying home out of complacency. And that if suffering comes as a result of our gathering, so be it, you are good. Let us live in accordance with our primary purposes on this earth, to exalt you individually and corporately and to preach and proclaim your name to this world that so desperately needs it. And I pray all of this in the name of our beautiful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.